it's a privilege for us to host this event and to be uh, uh, part of that, to welcome you to our campus for that, uh, for that event. Um, it's my task primarily this evening, uh, first of all, to call you to order. Uh, Leo said he'd been uh, doing that for two days and he, he, it was somebody else's turn. Uh, but also to, uh, to introduce uh, our Master of Ceremonies this evening, uh, the Reverend Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez. Uh, born in Chile, raised in Panama, flourishing in St. Louis. Uh, Leopoldo is a, a valued, uh, no, a treasured colleague uh, and uh, one, of our, uh, one of the minds that regularly uh, provokes us to deeper reflection. Uh, and uh, most recently, through uh, his publication in the Concordia Journal, of a, a very important article. If you haven't read the most recent issue of the Concordia Journal, I urge you to make sure to get a copy before you leave campus uh, and uh, make sure that you uh, first read Dr. Sanchez's article, The Global South Meets North America, Confessional Lutheran Identity in Light of Changing Christian Demographics. In fact, I think that article is the introduction for this evening's lecture and the topic for the uh, consultation on uh, uh, second and third generation uh, Hispanics in North America. Uh, so please, without further ado, join me in welcoming and thanking uh, our host this evening, Dr. Leopoldo Sanchez. So why do we have an annual lecture in Hispanic, Latino theology and missions? The purpose of this lecture is to raise awareness and educate the seminary community, but also the general public on issues that affect Latino communities and on the contributions of Latinos and others to the shape of the church's mission today. We have had lectures in the past on issues such as immigration, working in the borderlands, Hispanic Lutheranism, pastoral leadership in Latino contexts, and Latino contributions to the ecumenical task. And today we have a lecture from a good friend of ours, in a sense, an old friend. I remember hearing uh, Dr. Rodriguez speak to us on this campus many, many years ago uh, during an event of the former Hispanic Institute of Theology, now Center for Hispanic Studies. And uh, that presentation caused a very positive uh, impression on me and as we thought about the topic of second generation Latinos, uh, I thought he might just be the person to invite, and I am so glad that he accepted that invitation. So welcome home again, uh, Dr. Rodriguez. Now a little bit on Dr. Rodriguez. He's a sociologist and professor in the Department of Chicano and Latino Studies at California State University, Long Beach. 
he received his doctorate in comparative culture from the University of California, Irvine. He is a national speaker on Latino issues and as an anti-racist, multicultural education trainer, has worked with universities, corporations, social service agencies, police departments, and religious organizations. His writing and research focuses on the role of race and ethnicity in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. His most recent book is Latino Politics in the U.S., published by Kendall Hunt Press in 2005. Now, this, was, um, this book um, was also, um, um, uh, I guess, received an award or received an honorable uh, mention in the Gustavus Meyer Center Outstanding Books Awards process uh, that year. His opinion uh, columns has, have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Newsday, Orange County Register in California, Hispanic Magazine. He also writes in Spanish in publications in Colombia and Puerto Rico. He served as Associate Director for Studies in Social Science for the Commission for Church in Society, and later as Associate Director for Racial Justice in the Commission for Multicultural Ministries of the Evangelical Lutheran Church National Headquarters in Chicago from 1987 to 1990. From 1990 to 2000, he was Professor of Sociology and Director of the Social Work Program at Concordia University, Irvine. He is married to Laura Rodriguez and resides in Irvine, California. And tonight, he will be speaking to us on the new Latino generations caught between two worlds. Please help me welcome Dr. Victor Rodriguez. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, usually these podiums are built for people that are taller than I am. <laughs> so I have learned to stay away from them. And, and also the reality is that I'm the kind of, of professor that I just move around the entire uh, room. So I never stay in the same uh, place. Um, one of the things that I just want to say is that a lot of you know this information. Um, some of the information might be new to most of you, but I think it's a different way of presenting um, what is one of the most interesting, to me very intriguing and exciting um, changes that are taking place um, in our society. And that has to do with our youth. Um, one of the good things about being a professor is that I'm always surrounded by young people. And one of the good things about being surrounded by young people is that you don't have conversations about people that are sick, like we tend to do when I'm with people of my age. We talk about, oh, this hurts and the other. So that's one of the good things about being around youth because it keeps you very, very uh, young. But young people also have some challenges. And that's what I want to share uh, with you. What I want to do is, first of all, give you kind of a macroscopic view about this group that is called the Latino community. And I have some, some 
qualms about talking about Latino community because I prefer to talk about Latino communities because it's a very, very diverse uh, group of folks. And also, I want to talk about generational differences. And today, this morning, um, Pastor uh, Gonzalez, Eloy Gonzalez, was talking about the problems of definitions. And he is absolutely true. There's a lot of problems of definition in this thing that we call um, generation. But I want to focus on the issue of culture and how young people or groups of people at a different stage in their life experience certain things that changes their understanding of who they are and also what is called their world uh, view. And finally, this is something that all of you know, and especially those of you who are working in parishes, is that Latino youth are both a challenge, but also an opportunity for uh, any organization, but more importantly, for uh, the church. Now, everybody has different terms to talk about this concept of generation. Uh, one of them is Latino millennials. Probably some of you have seen uh, some writing on, on the uh, newspapers about what Latino millennials are. Uh, I don't know how many of you heard the Enye uh, generation, which is something that is focused on Latinos. It's very, some very interesting uh, work around uh, that. Um, and I just want to say something that Eloy Gonzalez said today. The important thing is that we understand that these concepts deal with groups of people, with patterns. And so there are individuals within those groups that don't fit the pattern. And obviously, that has to do because we are not made on the same mold, but we interpret our experiences in very unique and individual uh, ways. But I think there's some patterns that we can learn something uh, from that. One benefit or one positive aspect of talking about generation is that it allows us to look at interesting phenomena that is the phenomena of biculturalism. By the way, this is not new in America. Uh, there are some studies that talk about biculturalism among German Americans at the beginning of the 20th century. The first case that went to the Supreme Court on language was because German Americans in Nebraska were teaching Bible school in German. So it's not that this is new, it's that many of us have not been exposed to the history of some of the early immigrants that came to the United States. If you went to New York in 1910, you could read newspapers, daily newspapers in Yiddish. Now you go to LA and you read Spanish newspapers, like L'Opinion. But obviously, it's just that we have forgotten a little bit of the history of the immigrants um, of this nation. Another important concept is that of, in German, it's called Weltanschauung, which is worldview. Because what happens is that these generations go through a number of years, and they develop an understanding of who they are and how the world works in very, very particular ways. And we're going to see some examples um, of that. Just to repeat information that I hope most of you know, um, one of them is that Latinos today constitute 15.7% of the total US population. By the way, I just saw some projections, not projections, some estimates that come from the census 2010 that say that it might be 17 to 18%. We're talking about close to 50 million people. And there's still only 33 states that we have received that information. And compared to 1990, when it was half that, 
So there's been a phenomenal growth in the Latino uh, population. Um, just to use one of the, the, the source, one of the best sources of information that exists, which is the Pew uh, Hispanic Center, is that in the study, by the way, it was just released today. I just got it this morning. Basically, it says that the population in the United States, the Latino population, is much bigger than it was estimated at this point. And in fact, just with the 33 states that have been released, there's close to 600,000 people more than they expected. So it's, it's kind of interesting because we have been seeing the media talking about people returning to other countries. But there's something about this new population that we're going to talk about in a few minutes which makes it different from what we talked about and we described a few years uh, before. Only Mexico has more Latinos, Hispanics than the ones that live in the United States. And those 48 or 50 million are larger than the population of Canada. So we're talking of extremely, extremely large uh, population. Again, these are numbers that just came out just a few days ago. Texas, and we have a lot of folks from Texas, you're 38% Latino. California is 38% Latino. And it's expected that maybe in three or four years it's gonna be close to 40%. So that the majority group in Texas and California will be people of Hispanic descent. Now, why is this uh, important? Well, it's important because we don't have in our historical experience as a nation, anything that we can draw from in order to make sense of what this means. The United States, at least before European settlers came, has never been as multicultural as it is becoming today. And so obviously, sometimes that brings a sense of hope, and sometimes it makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. In terms of, of Latinos, as you see here, by 2050, one in four Americans will trace their ancestry to El Paso, to Nuevo Mexico, or some country in Latin America. So we're talking about one in four Americans. By the way, um, usually these projections, they have three series of projections. In other words, there's a low, a median, and a high. And this is a median. It might be even more than that, for reasons that I will explain in a couple of minutes. This is what is called a, a population pyramid. And just to explain how it works and what it does, is that it gives us kind of a, a picture in time of the numbers of men and women in a particular group. And it also tells us how many people are in different cohorts. Cohorts is a term that means, you know, a time span of folks. For example, here we have non-Hispanics, zero to four, and so this is the percentage of females, zero to four, and this is the percentage of males, zero to four. So what it does is that it gives us an idea of what is the percentage of people in all of these age uh, cohorts. And obviously, the, the first thing that you notice there is that this is a real pyramid. That is a real pyramid, which means that there is a large percentage of the population that is very, very young, which is why the median age for Latinos is 27. 
And for non-Hispanics, the median age is 39. Now, what does that mean? What that means is, yes, Latinos tend to have family size that is larger than other members of the American population. But also, the important thing is that you have a larger percentage, a larger percentage of people in the reproductive ages from 15 to 44, which means you have a lot younger population that is more likely to have kids. So that is one of the reasons why, since the last census, the growth of the Latino population is not entirely due to immigration, it's due to natural growth. So that's why, um, and I think, I don't know if it was um, uh, Reverend Aurelio or Reverend uh, Eloy uh, talked about how even if immigration stopped, this demographic change will continue to uh, take place. Let, let me say something, something else. It is interesting because what this means is that a large proportion of the people entering the workforce in the next 20 years will be predominantly Latino youth. And think about this. Some of us um, are a little bit older, and some of us belong to this generation here that is called what? Baby boomers. So these baby boomers, as they become older, will become retirees, right? So imagine this picture. Lots of baby boomers retired, which means there's going to be a lot of openings and demands for people with some skills or qualification and who are able to provide those positions with qualified people. Well, it would have to be the large part of the youth in the United States that's going to be, for the most part, Latino. Unfortunately, there's some problems with that, as we will see, because in terms of education, Latinos are not receiving the kind of education that is required in order to fulfill uh, that need that the United States economy uh, has. And also, for those of us who are going to be retired at one point, it also means that our retirement will be impacted if the workforce is not highly educated, because it's going to mean that people will receive lower salaries, and so less money will go into funds, especially not only pension, but obviously also the social security. So this is the first time in the history of this country that the future of retirees is dependent on the level of education, the quality of education that is provided to a group that will be predominantly not a member of the majority. So I just want you to think about that. A lot of baby boomers retired, and me, and basically a large uh, growth in the labor force that is going to be made up mostly of minority uh, young people, especially Latinos. And just to give you an idea of the incredible diversity among this group that is called the Latino community, there you have Mexicanos, who are the largest uh, group in the United States, Puerto Ricanos, Puerto Ricans, 4.4, Cubans, 1.6, Dominicans, 1.3, Salvadorians, 1.7, Guatemalans, 1.07. So we're talking about a very, very diverse, but also want to point out that Mexican-Americans or Mexicanos are the largest group in the United States. They are the largest group in the United States. And so it means that there needs to be some special response to the incredible numbers 
uh, that they have, especially in the Southwest, but also increasingly, as you will notice, in other parts of the nation. It used to be that when you look at the map of the United States, what this is, what this shows is the darker it is, the higher the percentage of Latinos in that county. Okay? Basically, that's what it is. So we have, in 1980, the, the kind of traditional division that I remember when I was uh, in grad school in sociology. Well, you have the Mexicanos in the Southwest, you have the Cubans in Florida, and they have the Puerto Ricans in the Northeast and Chicago. The reality that that is no longer the reality of the United States. That is the United States <coughs> in 2000, <coughs> 2008. And in 2010, it's gonna be even greater the dispersion and the presence of Latinos. Um, I do a lot of work in Moorhead, Minnesota, and also in, in Fargo, and there's a Mexican-American community there that has been traveling as migrant workers from the uh, Rio Grande Valley all the way to work 20, 30 years ago in the sugar beet farms, and they're still there. And obviously, the first time that I was there 25 years ago, I was surprised. But they are now not the exception. In reality, they are the rule. The other characteristic that some of you already have mentioned and have heard today is that most people think that most Latinos, first of all, are foreign-born, and they think that they're undocumented. And the reality is that that is obviously not correct. One of the first things that I do with my classes is I ask you, okay, how many of Latinos are foreign-born? And usually they say from 70% to 80%. Because that is the image that they receive from the media, which obviously still distorts the reality of uh, Latinos. And 62% are native-born, and 374 are foreign born. And by the way, that will also change when we get to 2010 because that has even increased probably to 67. This is an estimate of nativity, which just came out a few days ago, that says that 93% of those who are 18 years of age or younger are citizens of the United States. So, this change will also have a political impact because it's going to mean that's going to be a large number of young Latinos entering the time in their lives when they can participate in the, the politics and the electoral politics um, of this country and obviously to positions of leadership in this country. This is uh, a graphic that I created <coughs> with data from the ACS, which is the American Community Service, which is one of the, the segments of the um, uh, Census Bureau. And what it shows is of the various Latino subgroups and non-Hispanic whites, where are most of the people in terms of generation? So you have this one is 5 to 17. Mexicanos, a large percentage are 5 to 17, which means that it's a very, very, very young population. 12% are from 18 to 24, which, by the way, that is the college-going age. And 18.8, 25 to 34, which is, you know, kind of the time in which people are already involved in the work class and labor force. 
For Cubans, it's smaller. The Cuban community tends to have a higher median age. Latinos in general are 23.2, who are 5 from 17, 11.6, 18 to 24. Non-Hispanic whites, 16.5, obviously less than Latinos, much less than uh, Mexicanos, and in some ways similar to Cubans. Cubans in many ways are similar to non-Hispanic uh, whites. Now what that means is that the interests of Latinos are in education and health. So when people say, well, what are the interests? What are the worldviews of Latinos? Well, they're concerned about education. In, in California, working class Latino families spend a good, good chunk of their income sending their kids to Catholic parochial schools. And I ask myself how they can do it. Everybody pulls together because they understand how important and necessary a good education is. And unfortunately, the public school system uh, in California, as it is in many places around the United States, is in a state of disrepair. Technology, this is something, if you have a kid, if you have a nephew, you already know this. Uh, our kids have pushed us into um, the use of technology. I communicate with my grandchildren, it's the only way that I can communicate with them, through Facebook. Not the best way of communicating, but because I know if I go to Facebook, they're going to be there. So this is something that is taking place for the most part, and all Latinos are more likely, in fact, to do that than even uh, non-Latinos. Language. While 68% of English dominant and half or 50% of bilingual young Latinos use text messaging daily for communication, just 19 of Spanish dominant young Latinos do the same. So the more English they know, the more likelier they are to use the social networking uh, information. <coughs> By the way, at the end of that handout, I put a list of references which include the most recent studies on Latino generation, and also I include others about generations. Bendison and Amandi, uh, who did a very, very good um, study in 2010, basically argue that Latinos are very, very much invested in the use of technology. So if you want to reach Latinos, that is one way that you can reach them. By the way, I don't know if you follow the news, technology news, Google just created a person, a position for a person who will do recruitment outreach with Latinos. So they're gonna have a special focus on the Latino market. More than half of young Hispanic voters say that they watch Spanish language television frequently. I, I have a lot of Latino students in my classes and I ask them and I always get that, that a significant number of them uh, watch or are exposed to Latino television. Soaps are the primary focus, unfortunately. But um, again, there's a lot of angles, by the way, in California that watch soaps, but that's another. What this indicates is that this is a bicultural and bilingual group. That this is a group that in many ways is, um, I think some of you were watching uh, Mi Familia and, and the, the concept of bridge, they're kind of in between two cultures. They straddle both cultures. 
And being a bridge can be interesting, but also can be also a challenge, as we will see. Where do you get your news information? Internet, television, newspapers, radio talk shows, et cetera, et cetera. I was sharing with um, one of the colleagues here that when I teach, I have to have very strict rules about the use of computers in the classroom. And it's not because I'm against the use of computers in the classroom, it's that I know if I look behind the screen, we're gonna see someone that is not paying attention to the lecture and is actually going on Facebook to talk with their friends. It's one of the, the disadvantages of having access to computers and also rooms like this that are obviously uh, using a wireless uh, technology. And then again, those are the most <clears throat> popular, which are the, the same that maybe your, your nephews or your kids or your grandchildren use, Facebook, MySpace, and Twitter. How often do you watch Spanish language uh, television? So you see a significant number of young Latinos watching. Now, one of the hypotheses that I have is that because they tend to feel especially second, third generation, more comfortable sometimes in English. Their comprehension sometimes is better in English, or their Spanish vocabulary may be limited. It's because in their families, their parents are watching Spanish television. So sometimes that's part of being together with the family. It may not necessarily be that they're actually watching programs. However, um, Univision has created some Spanish content or some Hispanic culture content programs for that second and third generation. And they are in English, by the way, which is kind of interesting that they're doing programs in English. But they're still contextual in terms of being able to use Spanish or Hispanic or Mexicano culture so that kids, although it's in English, they're still connected to the culture. And there's a reason why that is very important, as we will see in a few minutes. Two-thirds of young Hispanics consider themselves bicultural. Only one in six say that they relate more to American culture. Why would that be? Why would that be? Kind of interesting that when you talk to young Latinos, although there's this strong pressure to assimilate, because kids learn English very quickly, but still they have this kind of hesitancy about what American culture means. Young Hispanics, according to many studies, but this is the most recent one, what they perceive is that sometimes when you become assimilated, you lose some of the values that you appreciate in your culture. The sense of, of, of collective responsibility for the family. Families join together in order to support other members of the family to go to school. I have some of my students are able to go to school because other members in their family, including brothers, are working so they can go to college and be the first one to go to college in the family, which is contrary to the kind of individualism that permeates our culture. Golesh uh, Bozan, by the way, that's referenced in the last uh, few pages of that handout, um, did a study in 2006 where she wanted to understand now, why are people using hyphens? Um, you don't see most European 
immigrants of second and third generation are calling themselves Italian-Americans. Some do. Irish do it, but only on, on, on March 17. Most of the year, they're just plain American. So why is it that so many Latinos hyphenate or use terms like Chicano, like many of the students in Southern California use? Well, it has to do with whether they feel included in the United States. And one of the ways in which they don't feel in included is when they have experienced some individual or observed experience of discrimination. Because what, what that does is that it makes them feel that they're not a part of. And when you don't feel that you're not a part of, then obviously you begin to hyphen it. I am Mexican-American, rather than just saying, I'm an American. And one of the things that I always do, the first day in class, I ask people, how do you identify? And I'm always surprised, always surprised, after 11 years doing this exercise, when I'm expecting, you know, I have in my room, classroom already about third, and I also sometimes have fourth generation. Still, the overwhelming majority, more than 60, 70%, identify not as Americans, unhyphenated Americans, they still identify using any of the other pan-Latino identifiers. When, uh, when I began <clears throat> my education in the United States, uh, I went to Louisiana State University and took sociology and I was exposed to uh, Milton Gordon and all these kinds of um, early American social theories that explore the issue of assimilation. And one of the, the, the concepts that I first learned was the melting pot, which by the way, the melting pot is a term that was used at the beginning of the 20th century based on a play by Israel Zangwill, a Jewish man, who talked about how Jewish people were beginning to melt into American culture. So it came out of this concern, again, about assimilation, but in this case, it was not Mexican-Americans. It was about Jewish people, Jewish immigrants, and how they were melting into the United States. And what happened is that what he observed is that Jewish people, after, after the second generation, did not call themselves Jewish-Americans. They called themselves Americans. And that was the melting pot that Israel Zangwill was talking about. But unfortunately, that doesn't work with the economy that we have today, and that doesn't work with a kind of new emerging multicultural nation in which we find ourselves. There's a lot of other concepts that are being used to talk about what explains better what is happening today. Uh, there's a professor from UC Irvine, Ruben Rumbau. It's called segmented assimilation. In other words, that some go through this path and others go through a different path. And depending how the path is how inviting, how hospitable the experience is, that will depend how people assimilate or not into society um, and culture. So the old Milton Gordon assimilation, which by the way, it was, you know, you first assimilate culturally, then you go into a secondary institution. It was like a, a very direct one-way road into full assimilation. It's not working or it's not happening in terms of Latinos. Mexican-Americans, for example, have been part of the United States since 1848. 1848. And still, still we're using the terms Mexican-Americans or Chicano or Mexicano. By the way, that's a, another interesting thing that I find. A lot of the kids, even second and third generation, they use Mexicano 
And I said, but you're not Mexican. He said, yes, I am. And then their explanation is that they are Americans who are still connected to their culture. So it's kind of interesting because 10 years ago, I didn't hear a lot of second, third generation calling themselves Mexicano. So the implication is that while they are learning the culture, the American culture, and obviously uh, you see that in terms of the music that they hear, in terms of the, the technologies that they use, in terms of the language, they're still connected to their original or ancestral culture. Now, I know that we have always talked about the importance of assimilation. And assimilation has both positive and negative consequences. And that's what the, the, the literature and the data uh, shows. First of all, one of the good things is that the more time you spend in the United States, the more proficient you become in English. That's not very difficult to imagine, right? Also, it means, which is a positive, they're more likely to be enrolled in college the more time they're here in the United States. So second, third generation will be more likely to enroll in college. Very, very good positive things, and that's what we want to see. But also there are some other consequences. They're also more likely to be part of a gang. Um, there's a professor in epidemiology from, from uh, University of California, Los Angeles. And uh, one of the things that he has found is that there's a lot of at-risk behavior that occurs to people as they become deeper and deeper in American culture. In other words, as they go from second to third to fourth generation. And that seems almost counterintuitive to what we have learned about the experiences of other earlier waves of immigrants, especially from, from Europe. Now, also obviously, <clears throat> there are other things that happen with, uh, as people go, as Latino youth go through uh, generations. Females 18 and nine who are mothers, first generation. Second generation, but look what happens in the third generation. Which by the way, there's something that demographers call the third generation effect that we're going to talk about in, in a few minutes, which is kind of interesting. In the second generation, the kids are very much into assimilating, but after they are in third generation, something happens with their experience that changes their worldview and their understanding of themselves and their relationship with American culture. High school dropout rate is very high in the first one, mostly due to bad schools, frankly, but also to the fact that they're English they're not very proficient in English. Second generation, and look again, what happens in the third and higher generation. You see the third generation uh, effect. 93% of Latinos 18 years or less are US citizens. And according to what is coming out of the census, this group is going to be extremely, extremely high. Already in California, more than 50% of 18 years or younger uh, are Latinos, which means that one of two persons that graduates from high school is Latino. And in California, it's predominantly, or the majority, are people of Mexican-American descent. And something similar is happening in Texas. Now, this is not applied, this is not a study that only was done on Latinos, 
but that some of these results also are being found among Latino youth. One of them is this cultural change that is taking place in the United States. Only 7% of youth inform that all their friends belong to the same religion. When I was growing up, most of my friends were of the same religion. Obviously, because we were involved in a more kind of neighborly um, culture, we stayed in the neighborhood, we shared, uh, made friends for the most part at church, but that is changing uh, in the United States. There is a value for diversity and tolerance because that is what they're living uh, in their everyday life. But also, they're influenced by cultural individualism, so they separate spirituality from their relationship to religious institution. In other words, they think that the church may not be the only place where they can um, develop their spirituality. And obviously we know, as I know, because I grew up in the church, how important the church is as an institution. But they have this individualistic idea that they can do that for the most part um, on their own. The white generation, they prefer the informal and expressive. That is something that most of you, especially who work with Latino youth in parishes, know it because you, now you have contemporary services. What is that all about? We are a liturgical church, but sometimes we have to make adaptations in the kind of worship service uh, that we have because youth tend to prefer something that is more formal and expressive. They're less connected to traditional politics. Um, in the last election, 2008, one of the things that helped the election of President Obama is that they tapped into ways, especially technology, that brought these youth that were not connected to electoral politics. They want to do stuff. They want to do volunteering. They want to do things that give them immediate gratification. But politics was not something that they were really interested. That was something a little bit too abstract. So what they were able to do is bring young people into politics. By the way, that has in many ways kind of declined and youth are again beginning to retrench in terms of the participation in electoral politics. Challenges for Latino or youth, poverty. Latino youth from 16 to 25 have the highest rate of poverty of any group compared to African Americans, compared to whites, and compared to Asians. So that is a challenge that our youth have. The other problem is obviously the one that I mentioned before is the lack of a college education. And even worse, no high school diploma. Latinos 23, African Americans 28. So obviously we're talking about something that is very disturbing because we are in the post-industrial era. This is the information age. There are no jobs, hardly any jobs for people without a college degree. And this is something it's a, a little bit confusing, but I'm going to describe what this means. This is, and it's not in your handout, I'm, I'm sorry about that. This is the kinds of jobs that are being created in the US economy. And this is a projection of the kinds of jobs that will be created by 2018. 101 million of this sort. And what are those jobs? These are managerial. These are STEM jobs, which are, you know, in the natural sciences, engineering, uh, nursing, healthcare, sales, support. Those are the jobs that require a college education. And these are the jobs that only a high school diploma or even a dropout can get. 
and look at the decline, 101 million, 61 million. If young people don't get a, a college education, where will they go? They will be straddled and mired in poverty, which obviously is going to create the kind of social conflict that we have seen um, before. 101 million jobs that require college education and 61 million that require nothing except a high school diploma. It's interesting, in the 1900s, I remember reading um, uh, reports about Polish young students dropping out in Chicago. And yet nobody was concerned. In other words, there was a Polish student dropout, but there wasn't a Polish student dropout problem. And why? Because if a Polish student dropped out in 1907, in 1920, from, a, from, from school, there was an economy that absorbed that person. And that person could get a job a union, with union wages and could basically buy his or her home and get married and basically begin to scale up the ladder toward the middle class. Today, that is not possible. Today, a student that drops out will be very likely mired in poverty for the rest of his or her life, will not have health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is a very different society in which we live today, which is not the society in which previous generation of immigrants came because the economy of the United States has changed in a very dramatic way. Economic challenges are part of the life of Latino youth. This is a study by Aida Urtuado, who's a professor at UCLA, and I just want to share because I think it gives some interesting insights into other aspects of Latino youth. This was done with Thousands of thousands of freshmen. It's one of the largest surveys ever carried out. Less Latino males are attending college. In my classroom, 10 years ago, more than half of the students sitting in my classroom were Latino males. Today, I can think maybe a one of my courses, and I'm teaching three courses, where I have more than six or seven males. Latino males are disappearing from higher education. And there's a lot of reason for that, including they're getting entangled in the criminal justice system. Uh, they're trying to find work in order to help the families. But the problem is that Latino males are disappearing from higher education, which is going to have an impact on, on marriage formation. Because I know that young people fall in love with each other, for the most part, because of love. However, we know that love is not blind. College age, I mean, college educated young man, non-college age, you know, the, the decision obviously is going to be a very, very difficult. This is uh, part of the work that I've done. I did um, um, a study for the um, National Education Association, the NEA. Um, we were looking at what is happening in the school system because we were concerned about the incredible high dropout rate among Latinos in Long Beach and also with uh, Cambodians because we were comparing uh, Latinos and Cambodians, which, by the way, had a very similar dropout rate to um, Latinos. And the problem is something that is called racialization. When a racialized group is racialized, it disconnects from the collective memory and worldview and internalized negative representation of the lost cultural identity. That jargon, basically what it means is that when a young Latino assimilates, he doesn't assimilate technical information, he also assimilates 
negative representations of what a Mexicano is, of what a Puerto Rican is. So they also internalize stereotypes about their own group. And it's very interesting because I interview my students and I get the same answers that you would get if you hear a talk show in Los Angeles about who Latinos are. They're lazy, I mean, we could go down the list. They also believe those lies about who they are. The reality, all the statistics, all the studies show that that is not true. Mexican Americans have the highest labor participation rate of any ethnic group. But you ask people, and what, do, what are the stereotypes they say about Mexicanos? Oh, some vagos, you know. Or even you ask Latinos and they say, okay, we're too vagos. No, it's not that they're vagos, it's just that the structure of the economy does not provide them with the education that allows them to be able to scale and experience upward mobility in the United States. And this is something that is very disturbing to me because I see it among the youth that I see um, around the nation. Uh, there's a plethora of studies that show the problems in health that second and third generation, especially third generation Latino youth are having. First of all, depression and suicide. Suicide rates inc increase through generation and third generation tends to have more than second generation. There's this, again, third generation uh, dip. Suicide is the third cause of death for Latino youth from 15 to 24. Despite the fact that Latinos have this collective sense, this family, but as they become to break those bonds with the family, they're also more isolated individuals. And remember, suicide is the most individualistic act that a person can commit. And sometimes I don't want to romanticize the extended family because I remember what it meant to have my abuela, my uncle, and everybody telling me what to do. But it was a support network that cushioned me from experiencing loneliness and obviously isolation. So that's why the culture is extremely, extremely uh, important. Also, native Latinos have higher rates of mental health problems than foreign-born Latinos. This is uh, from the US Department of Health uh, Services, which came out in, in 2004. Infant mortality rates for Mexican foreign-born women are lower than for native-born. It, it always perplexes me that foreign-born Mexican women who sometimes don't have health care insurance have lower infant mortality rates than second and third generation. I don't think you need to be a sociologist to figure that one out. It means that something happens when people internalize a culture change those things that were protecting them, including corn tortillas, hmm, rather than the other ones, including healthy food rather than fast food, I mean, all those kinds of things. But obviously, the stressors that young people experience because of the pro process of assimilation. Conclusions, Latino youth look for spirituality in formal ways, not rigidly institutional. There's a great diversity in that which is called the Latino-Hispanic community, which I prefer to call Latino-Hispanic communities. The strategic role of culture and technology in any outreach to Latino youth, this is something that you already, for the most part, are uh, using. Other youth are the best recruiters of other youth. I just did a training event for um, uh, another uh, religious organization, and they were training young people to do evangelism, which I think is a really interesting idea. 
they were training young people to do evangelism with other people. Um, the sense of carnalismo from Mexican-American, compañerismo in some other communities are very essential to build community. Everybody loves community. But sometimes when you're in the process of finding yourself straddling two cultures, you need that sense of being part of community. The church must contextualize its education and methodologies. Contextualize in the original sense. Contextualize means weaving together. If we're going to work with Mexicanos, we need to understand their culture and their history. Culture is a shield that protects them from experiencing and not being able to reject the lies that sometimes they get in the culture. The methodologies also need to be contextualized. Another thing that most of you have noticed also is that young people want to do something which has immediate gratification. Not only Latino youth, all youth, but in terms of Latino youth, because they have never been able to do it, uh, they really love. One of the things that is very popular in, in the courses that we offer is we have what is called community engagement. And at the beginning, I said, that may not work because it meant that they had to you know, invest some time. And, and some of these kids, I have kids that work 40 hours a week and go to college and have a full load. And still, they're willing to spend 10 hours a week doing volunteer work in the community, teaching uh, kids uh, English. Um, mentoring other kids on the campus because it's something that allows them to express their values and also it empowers them in a very, very powerful way. Other aspects of this process of assimilation is that they absorb, just like many of us have absorbed the idea that there is no longer a problem of race in the United States. And what happens is that since that is what they're taught in the school system, that we live in a colorblind society, when they experience either themselves or see acts of discrimination happen, it's something that just destroys them emotionally and sometimes uh, psychologically and sometimes physically. Just to give you an example, and this is going to be my last comment. There's a study done by an anthropologist Shanfield, and what she did is that she did an ethnography of what was happening in elementary schools. Basically, ethnography is just you observe, you sit in a classroom, you observe what is happening in the classroom, and then you take copious notes, and then you code them, and you're able to detect a pattern of what is happening. Well, this is something that I found extremely surprising. In a number of schools, she asked to converse with some of the students Many of the students thought, didn't know, let me, let me rephrase that, didn't know that Martin Luther King was a black man. Because the teachers did not even there talk about the fact that this was an African-American man. That is what is happening. And I'm just concerned that if we don't have some honest, authentic conversations, we're going to find ourselves in, in the kind of society in which we were uh, some years ago, especially with these incredible uh, demographic changes that are taking place. But fortunately, most of you who are here, you're doing the work. So you are, for the most part, the hope. And obviously, 
the church has a very, very important strategic mission in this arena. Thank you.